We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by a legendary figure in the chess game. He is a prolific author, a well-known trainer, a movie and TV consultant, sometimes even appears in chess um, movies and series. Uh, most notably, he was involved with Searching for Bobby Fischer, in which he also appeared, and Queen's Gambit, both the novel and the series. He was part of the announcing team for the match of the century in 1972. Scholastic, he was the scholastic coach of legendary American players such as Caruana, Fabiano Caruana and Josh Waitzkin, countless other scholastic champions. And I am honored to introduce him and bring him in. Bruce Prandolfini, how are you? I'm fine, Ben. Great to be here. Hope you're yes, okay. What's up? I hope you are doing well as well. Yes, all is well here in the Johnson household and very excited to have you uh, joining the show at last. So 
Bruce, I know you've done a lot of interviews over his, over time. You've been very generous. And of course, you've got so many stories and so much life experience to share. But I want to start, Bruce, with the, the dreaded words, according to Wikipedia. I wanted to, to fact check right. something that it says on your Wikipedia page. So, and I Don't think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it true or false, Bruce, that, that when you discovered chess at the age of 14, you skipped school for a month to read chess books? Well, I'll have to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has expired, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Amazing. Well, my parents were rather liberal. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so this was at the uh, Brooklyn Library? Yes, uh, not far from where Bobby Fischer lived. Is this the Grand Army Plaza, the biggest one? That's right. Oh, wow. Legendary. And Bobby Fischer was known to take out a chess book or two from there as well. Right. Um, that's part of his uh, historic origin. I mean, I think he took part in an exhibition there or I don't recall the details, but that was his library. He didn't live far from there. And what about you? Where in Brooklyn did you grow up? Various places, um, uh, Borough Park, uh, Bay Ridge, um, uh, the Park Slope area, which is, that's where that library is. Excellent, yeah, I used to live in the Park Slope area and I, I know the other, and Borough Park for that matter. Um, so good to hear. And Bruce, of course, also, uh, as you've discussed, um, you you got to know Bobby Fischer. And of course, you wrote Bobby Fischer's outrageous moves eventually. Um, what was your first interaction with Bobby Fischer? Right. Well, let me say, first of all, I was not a friend of Bobby Fischer's. I was a friendly acquaintance. He had very few friends. And I always have to laugh when I hear people saying, oh, yeah, I was friends with Fischer. <laughs> it's just <laughs> likely. Uh, I couldn't have called him up on the on the telephone and said, you know, hi, Bobby. Um, my first interaction with him, I think, was at an exhibition given by Grandmaster Larry Evans at the Marshall Chess Club. Uh, Evans was a wonderful presenter and maybe America's top chess professional all around at the time. Um, and uh, he gave a, maybe a 25-board simul at the Marshall, I don't recall. And I was in that simul. I played a Sicilian against him and handled it very poorly, but I managed to last to pretty much the end. That was the last game, in fact. At a certain point, Bobby Fischer came in, I think, to join him. I guess they were going to go out to dinner afterwards because they were friends. And since my game was the last game left, Fischer stood behind me. He was actually standing behind me watching the game. Oh, man. <laughs> so here's Bobby Fisher standing over me. I have a lost position. I didn't, I, I wanted to keep fighting. Eventually I resigned maybe 10 or 15 minutes uh, later. Evans had already sat down and was, you know, there was no one else to go to. And there was additional pressure there. When the exhibition was over, uh, Evans signed my score sheet. They gave him a huge hand because he really had done quite nicely and won all his games. Um, and then someone in the crowd suggested that Bobby, signed my score sheet and he immediately bolted for the door <laughs> on the second floor of the marshal and tried to get out but in his way was caroline marshall mrs frank marshall and she could get anybody to, to do almost anything she wrapped her arms around bobby 
and said, Bobby, sign the kid's score sheet. And he dragged him over to my board, literally, and he signed my score sheet. And that's uh, a treasured uh, remembrance I have all these years. Do you, do you still have the score sheet? Oh, yeah, yeah. How do you keep it? How do I keep it? Yeah. Packed in with many other papers that seem to be treated irrelevantly. But <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> well, that at least was you still Fisher. At least you still have it. So, what year would that have been, Bruce? Sixty-three, I believe. I was. Uh, so you were a fourteen, really fifteen, late fifteen. Yeah. Wow! Amazing. Um, so then. You know, this foreshadows, of course, your experience training Fabiano and going, getting to see him play for the world championship. But okay, I mean, obviously, Fisher's super famous and older than you. So it's not like you guys are friends, but you see him uh, continue to get stronger and continue his profile continue to rise. Um, do you remember, was it already clear that he had world championship potential? Or was there a moment that you remember where you realized that this was not your, um, your, um, Typical uh, American chess talent. Are you referring to Fabiano? Uh, well, let's start with Fisher. Oh, oh uh, no, Fisher was already a, obviously a genius by then. <laughs> Everyone knew that he had the talent to go all the way, and we expected that. Um, I, I he was incredibly uh, well followed. Uh, I remember I was a wall boy for the 63 64. Um, uh, championship where Fisher won, uh, went 11 and 0. Uh, and I recall that for the uh, Ryshevsky Fisher game, which I, I handled a number of the games uh, or shared them with other guys, move, that is moving the pieces on a demo board for the audience to see. We did it primitively in those days. Uh, but this was a big event, Ryshevsky versus Fisher. And uh, in the front row, Although I didn't, I didn't recognize them. I was told were sitting uh, Billy Wilder and Stanley Kubrick, wow. watching this action. Uh, so it was a very, very popular thing. Fisher was world renowned at that point. You know, what is it? Fifty sixty, he already played the game of the century. In fifty eight, he won the uh, was it fifty eight? He won the U.S. Championship first time. He was a grandmaster at fifteen. He was incredibly well known. Billy Billy Wilder and Kubrick, of course, being uh, famed famed directors. I knew about Kubrick's interest in chess. I didn't know about Billy Wilder's. Oh yeah. Um, in fact, when uh, Al Horowitz took over Chess Review, uh, I think there's a letter published from Billy Wilder congratulating him. They were obviously friends. Um, I don't recall the specifics of it, but uh, it was it was obvious that he was a, a chess player. Yeah, I'm not saying a very good one, but he was a chess player, and he certainly knew all about Ryshevsky and Fisher. Okay, and let's bring it forward, Bruce. So, again, you've done you've done lots of interviews. So, a lot of sort of your chess development and how you managed to become one of the first people to make a career out of chess that was, at least as far as I'm concerned, that was not a uh, a um, world class chess player. And of course, you've um, you've helped pave a way for many people like me who uh, derive some income from chess or run scholastic programs and e even professional players. Um, so, but you also got to be part of the, the match of the century uh, announcing team 
with uh, Shelby Lyman. Lyman, excuse me. So, right. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that experience, Bruce? Well, that was something that was quite extraordinary. First of all, yes, I was not a top player. I was a chess master, nothing distinguished. I won't pretend otherwise. And I had already stopped playing chess. I was working at the Strand Bookstore. A couple of things led to my involvement, actually, uh, for PBS. But I was working at behind the desk at the Strand, and this man brought, I don't know, five or ten books up to the counter. They were all chess books. And we got into a brief discussion as I was ringing him up. And um, it was very nice and pleasant. Then he left. Uh, a few days later, he got I got a call from him, and he asked me if I'd like to be an analyst for PBS covering the, the World Chess Championship. Uh, he simply liked what I had to say, even though I didn't say much. And he didn't have anyone else, is what he claimed, other than Shelby Lyman, of course. It was incredible. You know, Shelby was uh, fantastic. Uh, he, I don't, no one else in the world could have done the job, in my opinion, that Shelby did then. He was just a natural. He was boyishly engaging. Um, his mistakes were charming. And it's not easy to be mistakeless on national television, uh, live, uh, live coverage. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah. I'm probably going to make a few right now. I so, doubt it. Um, but that's how I, I got involved. And I already knew Shelby Lyman, so he possibly at that point had put a good word in for me as well. Uh, but it was the encounter with the chief producer at 13, it turned out that man was, <laughs> that I got the job, if you want to call it that. My job was mainly to support Shelby. I didn't really do very much. Uh, a much better job was done by Gene Meyer, whose job was to uh, counteract Shelby and disagree with him. And that was kind of funny because at one point uh, there was a break and I guess they'd had a, a difficult exchange and Shelby came on top of Meyer on, on private and he really started yelling at him. And, and he had forgotten that was Gene's job <laughs> to be critical of his <laughs> remarks. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so were you strictly behind the scenes, Bruce, or did you ever appear on camera as well? Oh, no, I was on camera almost every game. Uh, not the first game or two, but thereafter. But there was also, there was there were others part of the team, like Edmar Medges from the Marshall Chess Club, and he was very, very good and uh, rather dry, but that was, that was an integral part of the show. I think people identified with it because we weren't television people. Right. I was going to ask about that. Uh, and so they, we were like them. Right. <laughs> People were watching in bars and, and enjoyed it. I was out late one night with Shelby at a Lincoln Center restaurant after hours. And this man came running up to Shelby and said, Shelby, Shelby, I'm so glad to meet you. You know, And he, he reached out to shake Shelby's hand and Shelby kind of reluctantly uh, responded. And Shelby says, do I know you? No, Shelby did not know Dustin Hoffman, but Dustin wow. Hoffman recognized Shelby Lyman. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's that's an incredible, incredible story. And so, Bruce, you're 25 years old, if I'm not mistaken, at, at this time. As you say, not not seasoned in front of the camera. And of course, we've had guests like John Donaldson and uh, Frank Brady on this show describe sort of 
the the magnitude of the event. I think um, it's hard for modern day chess fans to even fathom how many eyes were watching this match. So uh, what did that feel like when when the cameras come on? Like, how were you able to even uh, even speak? Well, I was nervous. I won't pretend otherwise, but you kind of force yourself to, to do the job. Um, naturally, we made mistakes, as I say. We all made mistakes, uh, saying white women black, uh, naming the squares incorrectly, or even saying incredible things. I they We had Rosalimo on at one time. It was, uh, he was only on for a few minutes. It was clear he was inebriated. And Shelby <laughs> asked him about the position. And he said something to the effect, yes, interesting. This reminds me of a position played by Yugoslav master, whose name begins with an M. <laughs> he was so much <laughs> was obvious. At and least he he made he... Montanovic, we don't, you know, I don't know. At least he knew his limitations. <laughs> he didn't try to say the whole name. Um, that's a great story. So, and then uh, Fish, Fisher wins the title, of course. Um, a, amazing moment in, in chess history. Um, did, what was the, the last time that you saw Fisher, Bruce? Uh, I, I saw him in the late 60s at the Marshall Chess Club, uh, and I sat with him and Bernie Zuckerman, who was a, a friend of Fisher's. We were analyzed for at least three hours at, uh, at the Marshall, um, looking at various games from journals and stuff. I didn't say much. I just sat there and uh, shared that experience with with uh, Fisher and Bobby and uh, Bernie. Uh, and of course, Bernie Zuckerman was an incredible talent. Not my favorite guy. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And was, was <laughs> he was just a really difficult man, but just uh, brusque, or what was what was the issue? He was. He could be really crude. You know, I, okay. I, I, I'm not even going to go into the stories. They're not uh, recordable. <laughs> at least based on the standards of my age. Uh, I don't know about today, but uh, but he was a, a, a very gifted individual. People called him Zuckerbook because of his knowledge of um, openings. But actually, he, when he started talking about chess, I found him to be the single most articulate person I knew describing any aspect of chess. He could really explain things very, very well. He just had no chess guts which is why he didn't become a stronger player. Uh, and he doubted himself at points. But he was friends with Fisher, um, and maybe antagonistic friends, but they did hang out a lot together. Uh, and that was my last direct time with Bobby. And another occasion, um, after I published uh, Bobby Fisher's Outrageous Chess Moves, uh, I heard back from him that he did not like the word outrageous. He thought that was a critical word meant to uh, undermine him in some way. Of course, it wasn't. I was just using it, you know, modern day uh, praising use or usage. But uh, that's the actual last time I, heard, I had any contact with Fisher. That was in the mid 80s, I think, 84 maybe. Oh, the last time I actually uh, saw him was in the late 60s. Other than on TV, yeah, yeah, <laughs> With, which you were off. On, on various appearances he made. By the way, he was really uh, engaging. 
it, but at the end of his life, when you see him interviewed, of course, it's it's so depressing. I mean, the comparison. But when yeah. he was on with Bob Hope, let's say, or um, Dick Cavett, or uh, I think Johnny Carson. I mean, he was he was marvelous. Yeah, the Carson footage recently showed up on YouTube. Yeah. Well, there's um, only one. There's only one Bobby Fisher. You know, he's yeah. the in history. Yeah. But of course, you've you've worked with so many other uh, legends of the game, which we, we want to get to, Bruce. But one more sort of biographical question, just because I can't help but wonder. So you mentioned it was working at the Strand, uh, famed New York City bookstore, um, in a non-chess capacity that ultimately led to your role on the announcing team of the World Championship. Um, so, and, and of course, we know that you've managed to parlay that into all kinds of chess opportunities, ranging from your many books to uh, your consulting and acting gigs and so on and so forth. But it makes me wonder, Bruce, what was your last non-chess job? Well, I had various odd jobs. I mean, I, going from uh, digging ditches in Berkeley for a dollar an hour to being a waiter a dollar an hour, uh, post office, a salesman at Gimbel's selling blankets and silverware. And I would approach customers and say, may I hinder you? I didn't last long. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, of course, I meant that as a joke, but it right. didn't go well with management. Um, but I, I guess that was my last job. I, I really wanted to be a writer or a poet, especially. I had a small collection of uh I didn't realize it at the time, but I soon discovered that it was rather bad poetry, and I was working on that. So that's what I was endeavoring to pursue that career, and it just didn't pan out. Uh, I'm not a natural writer as much as I aspired or tried to be one. Um, so that's what I was doing. I, at the Strand, I worked in review books. That was a fascinating experience because uh, the one who was above me was Bert Britton. And he knew all these people, all these famous people would come in from Anais Nin to uh, uh, oh, every writer imaginable would come in and check in with him because he would give them free books. Wow. <laughs> and so I got to speak to many of them, you know, Saul Bellow, it goes on oh, and on. Wow. That's incredible. Kurt Vonnegut, you know. And no, many, no many wonder your chess books are so good. What's that? No wonder your chess books are so good. Oh, well, thank you. I Actually, I, I never recommend my own chess books. I'm, I've never been happy with any of them. And there are far better books out there. Although I tried. I tried to do a good job. Uh, I think I was, I had to do too many books over a short span. And uh, at Simon & Schuster, we didn't have chess editors then. And there were a lot of problems. Of course, I must accept all the blame for everything that... Uh, went wrong with them uh, because, hey, I have to sign off on it. <laughs> no getting around that. Yeah. So. Well, well, as, as someone who's done a lot of scholastic teaching, um, your, your um, Endgame course and uh, your Traps and Zaps books, I mean, they're, you know, they may have one or two chess errors, as all, all books did in the uh, pre-engine era, but they're, they're great entry-level books for uh, aspiring young chess players. Oh, thank you, Ben. Well, I, I tried to attract people to the game. I love chess, and that's the thing I've always wanted to show and and and, and uh, convey to people. Uh, I try to do it in my writing. Uh, it's hard to capture you know, the way you would speak and um, uh, engage people uh, on the on a, a page. 
some people are really gifted at it. Uh, that's not my domain, but I tried. I worked very hard. So I tried to be dedicated. I just wish I had done a better job. I also wish I could edit some of these books and correct all the mistakes and improve the writing. I'm getting a little old. <laughs> 73, right, Bruce? Uh, yes, I'm 73. Okay. You, you, look, you look great, um, and your memory is great. So um, whatever you're doing, uh, I encourage you to stick with it. Well, let's see if I can last the entire uh, remainder of the segment. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sure. Might have spoken too soon. Um, well, on that note, we better take a break, Bruce. So um, okay. we're going to take a quick break and hear from our friends at Chessable. And then we've got uh, lots of questions from supporters of the podcast to dive into. This is your weekly reminder that Chessable.com has a ton of high-quality material. Whether you're looking to learn a certain opening, want to see the latest Super GM repertoire that has been published, want to find a tactics course appropriate for your level, whatever it may be, go to Chessable.com and have a look around. Don't forget they have tons of cool free content too, like their short and sweet courses about various openings. And all of the things that they offer feature their proprietary move trainer technology, the secret sauce that lets you actually remember all of the new chess moves and opening sequences that you learn. So once again, chessable.com, check out their ever-expanding, excellent library. And we are back. And our first question is from supporter of the podcast, Brian Chase. Those who help to support the show and keep it going, find out the guests in advance and get to ask questions to legends like Bruce Pandolfini. So Brian asks, Bruce, he says, as a child psychiatrist, I often have to address parent-child relationship dynamics in a clinical setting, but I think coaches have special knowledge about this subject. What is your approach to determining whether family dynamics are healthy enough for a child to begin training fruitfully with you as their coach? And how has your approach changed over the years based on experience with parents who express interest in their child's chest development? Well, that's a, a very good question, very deep, and uh, it touches upon a lot. Um, well, my approach may have changed, certainly through the years. Um, at first, I took every student imaginable. Since I was trying to make a living, I, I just did every single assignment I could. And I, I would work ridiculous hours from six in the morning till even two at night or past midnight. Uh, I, I often slept less than four hours a day. Um, I just, here I was trying to make a living at it and I couldn't, I was fearful of losing the assignment. Uh, in that process, of course, I did many inadequate or poor lessons, I did, and I didn't really uh, grasp problems right away necessarily from parents, but it soon became evident that some parents were difficult. Um, I, I found over time that I, be, I could be more helpful uh, staying involved rather than dismissing students. For a while, I would be very selective if I could after I had established myself after the first year or so. But I'm a, I like to think I'm a people person. And uh, it made more sense to me to try to help a student who may have had difficult uh, parents. Usually it's one parent, but it could mm -hmm. be two in some cases. Um, so I, I've, I didn't... Uh, say no to students who might need my help. And I think I've had many examples where my personal relations and, and sense of identification with these students did help. 
uh, maybe I can give you a story or two. Amazing things happened. I was teaching this um, very talented young player. Um, I think he was going on eight. Uh, and he had a lot of promise, although he did not play very often in, in tournaments. Um, he had a problem, though, and that is that he had um, a, a terrible uh, stutter. And um, I began focusing a little bit more on that end of things, trying to help him be more relaxed. I would uh, uh, find things he happened to be interested in, such as military battle plans and various uh, points of history and discuss them. And after a while, I was going mainly into those areas and almost um, dismissing what had to be done in chess and I began feeling very badly about it, but I, I could see him gaining from it what I thought to be. And I made the decision to keep doing that. Um, he had to move away and I lost contact with him and he still had the problems. A number of years later, I got a message on my answering service. And I, as I was listening to it, I was absolutely stunned. The, uh, the kids, this is the same kid speaking in perfect English said that he, uh, he was very happy for our association. He had gained so much from it. And I hadn't spoken to him in years, and he had just won the nationals and the, uh, the high school nationals. <laughs> he uh, wanted to thank me. And I constantly had experiences like that, working through difficult problems. And that's a, not the same thing as a parental problem, uh, but I think I, there were other situations where I really did help kids who had truly difficult uh, uh, father-mother uh, situations. Either they were involving themselves too much through their children or um, punishing them in, in terrible ways if they didn't succeed. I had one student who I had a, a really valued relationship with, and he had many successes. And one day he lost to a girl in a Goitschberg tournament. Bill Goitschberg was, at the time, certainly the biggest organizer. And, and he did so much for U.S. chess in so many ways. Um, and I got a, a call from the uh, father later in the night and said, my son's no longer interested in chess. He's going to stop the lessons. Now, this had been, I had felt part of the family. I was so close wow. to the, the kid. But what really happened is that at the tournament, he had signed on with another a grandmaster, a grandmaster who said he could correct all the the mistakes I had instilled in his child. The kid was, in my mind, destined to be a grandmaster. He, he never made it. Uh, but it, it broke my heart. <laughs> he had lost to a girl, and the, that was the crime. Yeah. Imagine well, that in today's world. Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, uh, luckily, we've gained some perspective about things like that, although we, we still have a ways to go. Yeah, yeah that's um, a case of bad parenting in my opinion. Yeah. Well, luckily you also um encountered some some good parents ranging from Lou Caruana to uh Fred Waitskin, um fathers of uh the, the prodigies that that you coached. Um very true. And 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 I wish I should give a shout out to Bonnie Waitskin as well. I don't I don't know the name of um of uh of uh Fabiano's mother. But um Bruce, so having worked with so many elite talents, and of course it's um 
you know, you've talked in the past, you also maybe didn't work as extensively, but you coached a young Robert Hess and even did a lesson with a young Joel Benjamin. So touched so many uh, top players' lives. Um, is is there anything you notice in common from from these top young talents? What I, Because I know you've said in the past that you recognize they were special quickly. So what is it about these these people who go on to become um, bright talents that, that you think distinguishes them? Well, it's clear at first that they're all fighters. They don't give up easily. You have to be very resourceful as a chess player. You, you often get inferior positions. You just can't give up. You have to find, uh, find ways to fight back. I think overwhelmingly these kids have that. But also they love chess. I mean, they really, they really enjoy the game and it, it becomes part of them. So I think all of them have that, a, a great joy and pleasure in playing and analyzing chess. And you need that. You're not going to succeed otherwise um, if you don't. You know, I've always said if, if you love something, it usually loves you back. And that's certainly true for chess. So would you say that that's the, the most important thing or do you think there is a most important thing? I'm not sure there is a most important thing, but the, those two things, you know, being a uh, resilient, being resourceful, uh, a true fighter, and also just loving what you're doing are critical. Um, certainly there are other talents going. It's great to have, uh, you know, a very keen memory, uh, to, uh, to love solving problems in general, um, to be able to find associations and analogies pretty easily, um, to realize the rules have changed. Uh, for example, we, a rook is more valuable than a knight. But when you recognize in a position that suddenly a knight is more useful here and, and has opportunities a rook doesn't, well, that's a perception, a, a certain quality that these players have. They realize things are changing and they, they pick up on that. And I think that's fairly true, too. And there are other things. I mean, you know, ch chess styles are so different. You know, compare Kasparov and Karpov. Two different worlds completely and yet two of the greatest players ever, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good point. I mean, and I, I do feel like in recent years, uh, with the advent of uh, engines being stronger and stronger, the styles have converged a bit. But you can still see you can still see each person's um, unique imprint, especially um, at the very top with uh, with Magnus's uh, unique grinding right. style. Right. Um, so you coached Fabiano. You were, I believe, his first coach. Um, and eventually, Moran Cher, uh, rest in peace, um, began coaching him. But could you describe a couple of those early experiences? What, um, how did he compare to your other students at the time? Because this is a long time ago now, and, and I do have an aging brain. Uh, let me just correct one thing. I wasn't his first coach. He had a, a teacher, Caroline Coronia, in a, in a, uh, at a, a temple. He was uh, attending an after-school program and. She introduced me to him, and then he took. Uh, he came over to my Berkeley Carroll class, and then we started private lessons after that. But I was his first uh, private coach, uh, and then Miran Cher was a brilliant brain teacher and coach. Uh, he was Robert Hess's main coach all those years. I think maybe his only coach, real real coach. I mean, others gave uh, Robert help. I helped Robert in his. Uh, class sessions at the Browning School, we would often analyze two knight position, two knights positions, or the two knights defense rather. Um, 
and he was a real fighter. Uh, but Fabiano, uh, it was obvious that he uh, really was focused and attentive at the board uh, right from the start. Uh, he could take losing very, very well. Uh, I mean, he, he really felt it, but he did not betray emotions at the board easily. He was very poker-faced, and I, I thought that was really wonderful. I thought he had tremendous potential. Um, right from, he was tactically gifted. Uh, right from the start, you could see uh, um, sequences of several moves in his head. And one thing you pick up right away from a child is, and any experienced teacher will know this, that you just follow their eyes and you see what they're thinking. To the extent that, and Fabiano thought this too at first, that I was reading his mind, but all I, he was betraying his thinking by showing uh, by his eye movement. And so uh, an alert teacher can sense that and pick up on that and perhaps take advantage of it to the student's benefit. Um, but anyhow, I could see that Fabiano was truly focused and concentrating on, uh, on what he was doing. And I liked that. And I knew he had great potential. I think I even have some notes on him in my, uh, I kept notes on all my students. I have 50 years of notes, almost 50 years. I'm starting my 50th year of chess soon, teaching chess. Uh, and it's like book after book of observations I have. I don't know what to do with them. Maybe one day I'll give them to the uh, Chess Hall of Fame or something. I haven't done things like that because they're private. I feel like I'm almost a shrink. I'm sitting with an individual. Uh, should I reveal these personal things in these notes? I took them as a kind of scientist. I always wanted to be a scientist too, uh, you know, like Sigmund Freud taking notes. But uh, um, So I have records going back on all these students. That, and some of the observations are... To me, they're quite fascinating. I'll be rereading them from time to time. Yeah, you should definitely donate those to the Chess Hall of Fame. I'm sure people would would love to see them. If Do I you ever look at them yourself? Uh, what was that? Do you ever look at them yourself? Yes, from time to time, although most of them, uh, reams of them are buried in my storages around town. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I don't get to see them all. Every once in a while, I'll come upon something as I go through a box and say, oh, wow, look at that. And uh, the observation tends to be true. It's always fascinating to see a student you haven't seen for many years, by the way. You know, you're working with them as children, and then they go off. And of course, I've lived long enough now, 20, 30, even 40 years later, I will see a person who's grown up. I said, Wow. <laughs> And they still usually remember the lessons and have That's something great. to say about them. So uh, I've, I've certainly enjoyed doing all this. And I would, if I get a second chance in another lifetime, I'll do it again. Yeah. I mean, and I know you're still working hard. Um, the, the few times we've talked on the phone, arranging um, interviews and such, you're always, you're always uh, out, in, out in New York uh, on coming or going from a lesson. So um great. Show, shows a true true love and dedication that you're still putting in the hours. Um, so we've and we've got a, a coaching or chess improvement related question. This one is from a friend of the show, Stephen Sparks. Um, so Stephen asks, he says, whether books, instructional videos, or websites like Chessable, chess improvers are spoiled for choice these days, which presents a growing problem of information overload. So, Bruce, if you had to name three books besides your own excellent books, and those are Stephen's words, 
in addition to mine, okay. uh, that chess improvers should work through closely, what would they be? Well, again, I'll just reiterate, I wouldn't recommend my own books, but thank you. Uh, the books, I was inspired by so many books. I mean, that's how I got into the game deeply. Um, as I think back, uh, I certainly love the game collections of Botvinnik and Alekhine. I, I learned so much from those those games, uh, as have so many people. Uh, Fisher's 60 Memorable Games, I love that book. But I love a book like Fred Reinfeld's uh, The Human Side of Chess, or some of the things done by Irving Chernov. Those guys really knew how to do it. In fact, when I was hired by Simon & Schuster in a nine-book package, which was an incredible thing to sell, yeah, amazing. <laughs> uh, really without an agent. Um, in fact, when I did get an agent later, uh, she said to me, I've never heard of anyone selling nine books to Simon & Schuster. How the heck did you do it? <laughs> well, they wanted me to replace these classics by uh, Reinfeld and Chernev and Horowitz. And of course, they are irreplaceable. My books don't compare to them. You know, they're in descriptive notation, uh, which is from the past, and people don't feel comfortable looking at them anymore that way. But those are great books. They can't be matched. The only one who, who uh, reaches that level and keeps the tradition alive and is brilliant at it, and today's, in my opinion, best writer is Andy Soltis. I mean, he's the king, and um, he knows how to do it, and he, he's sustained that glorious tradition. Uh, and he's given us so many wonderful books. Um, so yeah, turn to the books of Andy Soltis if you want to be uh, receive some inspiration from chess. Yeah, and Andy does it all from chess history to chess improvement. Yeah, there's only one Andy Soltis. Yeah. Um, okay, and uh, another uh, improvement-related question. This one is from Glenn Downing. Thanks for the support, Glenn. And Glenn asks, he says, uh, given Bruce's incredible teaching record over decades, what chess improvement advice have you stopped giving? And what advice has stood the test of time? <sighs> Not an easy question to answer, but a good one. Um, I think when I first started, since I didn't really know where to begin or how to do it, I turned to the, uh, you know, Tarish and Capablanca and um, Lasker, Emmanuel Lasker, the great teachers. Um, in, based on their writings. And I started with the end game because they emphasized that. And, and I also had some knowledge in the end game, more so than I had in the opening and the middle game, I think. Um, and I've, I've helped through the years players much stronger than myself by uh, helping them analyze the end game. Um, so I started there and I was kind of uh, perhaps too forced in that presentation. But over time I realized there is no one way to teach chess, no one thing you had to do first, in my opinion. Uh, you could start almost anywhere and enjoy it and, and spread out from there. Certainly, you can learn things from the opening, uh, the tactics of the middle game, even the more advanced concepts and strategic thinking in the middle, in, in the middle game. Uh, you can go from there. That's all possible. As long as you have uh, someone who presents it clearly, really tries to help the student, um, and kind of knows how to do it. So over time, I, I don't necessarily start with the end game at all. Uh, that's changed completely. Not that I'd have a problem starting there, but I find that a lot of students will be dis dissuaded from going further. If you say, look at this end game, or let's go yeah. over this. They say, I never reach an end game. Why am I doing this? <laughs> so 
true or not, I have to deal with that. And if you have that psychological block that you feel it's not going to be valuable, well, you're not going to get much out of it. Or you're going to get a reduced amount out of it. So um, I won't enforce that at all. Uh, I'll try to really understand a student from the first. Now, I've given so many private lessons. I've also given a lot of classes, by the way, even at the, the college level, not just after school. Um, for 19 years, I was on the uh, faculty of the new school, and th those courses were given for credit. I think in the, yeah, I was in the philosophy department, although I don't think you could do very much philosophically with, with what, I, what I was showing on the chessboard. <laughs> uh, but I did things like that too. Most of my teaching, though, was privately over the board with, in a one-on-one -on -one way. And I found that over time, I would start playing a student to see what he or she knew and would begin asking questions to see how they responded. And sometimes in an hour lesson, I'd ask hundreds of questions. It, it, you would think, how is that possible? I mean, they'd make a move and I'd say, oh, there? And with a question mark, why there? Did you think of this? And they'd answer, you know, it, it, the whole dialogue would be uh, embroidered with or filled with questions. Uh, and that the way they responded to those questions gave me a sense of what I might have to do to build um, a structured set of lessons for them. And I always would try to lay out a course um, anywhere from four to 10 sessions. And even if they weren't going to continue with me, I would give them that course so they could follow on their own. Now, as I said earlier, some of these uh, interactions became painful, especially when I had crazy parents. Uh, and um, I was always, always fearful of losing part of my family, that because they became my family. So I wanted to be part of introducing them, if I could, to their new teacher. And so I would very quickly after a year or two, try to find them other teachers to take them further. And I would help them in that search. Some students stayed on longer. But I'm not a guru. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm not that. I want to be uh, an assistant or so. I, I think the main value of a teacher, the main thing a teacher tries to show a student is that you don't need the teacher. Ultimately, you can do it on your own. I felt that was my job. By asking questions, by showing them how I think, perhaps some of that could rub off and they could begin to realize, hey, I can do this. And uh, do and you, that was my job. And do you specifically, like, how do you impart that? Do you specifically tell your students that or do you uh, just try to show, not tell? Both. There are times when it's natural to talk about it. Um, and there are times you don't. I mean, if you have a student um, listening and we're, we're talking in general, that happens to you. Sometimes you diverge and go into other subjects. That always happens when you're sitting over the board. But I will try to bring it back in some useful way um, if I can. I mean, I, I certainly endeavor to do that. Uh, and I, I will say it's, that's what a teacher does. I, you know, you don't need me. You can do this. You don't need anyone. Unless I felt that, that weren't true. Very rarely was that that I feel that. I, every student can gain by self-work, uh, can gain something. In fact, I remember one lesson, you know, when Sh Shelby Lyman was the one who encouraged me to be a teacher. And um, he introduced me to my very first student 
it was going to be one of his students, or he, he was already one of his, no, no, it was, that was a different one. It, this one was a new student he was going to have, uh, but he couldn't do it anymore. He was too busy. And he encouraged me to do it, or tried to uh, get me to do it. I said, I can't teach. And he said, no, come along, I'll show you. So he went along, or I went along with him rather. And this guy had a board and we sat down at the board and Shelby's first comment to him was, uh, let's play or something to that effect. And the fellow said, but I don't know how the pieces move. And Shelby said, move them the way you think they move. Huh. And I thought that was profound. Wow. <laughs> even though he, the guy couldn't divine how the, the pieces moved, in trying to do that, when it was explained to him, he would be so much more receptive to the ideas, I thought. And I thought that was ingenious on Shelby's part. It was a way of getting a lesson going. He was the, America's most successful chess teacher at the time. He was actually giving regular classes, and uh, he was very, very good at it, at the Marshall and, and elsewhere. Um, he was a, a great talent. Uh, of course, he's gone now. Yeah. Um, well, great, great um, wisdom there, Bruce. Thank you. And we've got one more uh, teaching-related question, and then we'll do a little bit of Queen's Gambit before we let you get on with what I'm sure is a busy day, Bruce. So this question is from uh, Dima Spivak. Um, and Dima asks, he says, how has the rise of chess on YouTube and Twitch impacted the development of your students? Is having instant access to so much quality chess content helping or hindering the next generation of chess players? Right. Well, I, I think these tools, uh, such as um, the, the incredible software we have, software we have these days, can be very helpful. But we shouldn't be reliant on them um, as if they're, they're the last word, even when they are. Uh, as is often said, it's better to have a bad plan than no plan at all. And if you just try to memorize these um, suggestions, move by move suggestions, without understanding how they uh, integrate into an overall approach, uh, you may not get as far as if you have a slightly inferior idea, but related to other things that are supportive of it. You know, um, And so I, I wish we would get back to general planning again and asking strategic questions. Uh, which is a, a very important thing to do in any uh, learning uh, discipline, to ask relevant questions that generate information about the position or about the situation before you, and then to take it from there. Uh, very often by merely asking a question, you practically have the answer. I know it's platitudinous, but it's true. Um, I, I love what we call Capablanca's question uh, in working through a middle game and, and trying to form a strategy or plan, I'll say, Hmm, what would what would I like to do if I could? Mm -hmm. That's not a profound question, but remarkably, if you pose such a question, your mind unconsciously will be uh, or will better chance of being led to a good area. That's how the mind works <laughs> to some extent. Uh, and um, so, just that general query can lead you to a, a chain of thought that can be helpful and productive. Uh, anyhow, these tools today shouldn't be dismissed. They've they've led to stronger players in general. We can see how many players are twenty eight hundred and plus or approach that. Uh, you know, Bobby Fischer finished at twenty seven eighty or twenty seven eighty five. Now, obviously, if Fischer had access to these tools with his genius, he would have been able to exploit them too. But all these players who have done so well, 
uh, been inspired by Bobby Fischer and, you know, Mikhail Botvinnik and, and the great Russian players of the 50s and 60s and how they contributed with the various and different styles. Uh, all these players have learned from those, those great ones. And it's uh, the site of most, uh, much often uh, put out there cliche, uh, Isaac Newton's, if I've seen further than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Well, that certainly applies here. Uh, uh, these these players have learned so much from you know the Fisher years and and the Soviet uh, work. I love so many things said by Botvinnik. One thing he would do if he had a problem with an idea or he didn't he didn't feel he could handle it comfortably, in his practice sessions he would go right into the teeth of it and expose himself to the problem, trying to overcome it, um, so that he became more and more comfortable with it. So uh, I think there's so much to be learned from those players, even though we can say, well, the openings are a little different now. And not really. And yes, at the same time, yes, because of all these ideas that have been revived, you know, from the Berlin defense, which was discarded for so many years in the Lopez and then became a tool of top players to so many other things. Uh, Nakamura has uh, delved into so much of that and found so many original ideas or revive them in old ideas in, in new and exciting ways. And you see that across the board. Um, so I don't think these tools will put an end to chess. I think we'll, we'll find a way to extend it even further. But at the same time, I know people say, well, this is so boring <laughs> because I, I, these people draw all these games and I don't understand what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to understand what they're doing. It reminds me of a, an anecdote of Wilhelm Steinitz, uh, Supposedly, uh, a kibitzer came up to him after a game, whether or not this is true, it's out there, uh, and said, you know, you, you did this and that. I don't understand why you did this. It made no sense. I just don't understand. And I think he said something to the effect, have you ever seen a monkey contemplating a watch? <laughs> right. You didn't mess with Steinitz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what you're saying, Bruce, uh, Magnus Carlsen within the past few weeks actually had a quote where he said he doesn't think you can become a top player by only studying and working with engines, um, that, that you have to study the classics. They got the words that right out of the, the world's greatest player. So, yeah. Okay. Well, Bruce, this has been amazing. I just want to talk about Queen's Gambit a little bit if you're up for it. But first, uh, sure. let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about our friends at chessmood.com. Chessmood.com has a comprehensive library that covers all phases of the game, opening, middle game, and end game. Their opening repertoire videos are very in-depth and cover everything you need to know about the openings that they have handpicked. They also have some great free content available, including Grandmaster Avtek Gregorian, their founder's blog and the Daily Lessons with the Grandmaster, which you can find on their YouTube channel. So go to chessmoot.com and check out what they have to offer and be sure to subscribe to their YouTube as well. Let's get back to the interview. Okay, and we are back and we are ready to talk about the landmark Netflix series, Queen's Gambit. Of course, I think everyone listening has probably seen it, (laughs) at least 95% of you. Um, And if not, obviously familiar with it. Bruce, of course, has a long history. He actually consulted on the novel with Walter Tevis and and knew Walter Tevis. 
Um, and I, for listeners who want a little bit more background, I encourage them to check out uh, Bruce's interview with uh, U.S. Chess's John Hartman, which can be found on YouTube. He goes deep into the whole history. Um, so we'll just touch upon it lightly because I have some some other questions mm -hmm. as well, Bruce. But um, you've talked in the past about uh, Walter Tevis's life and his his uh, affinity for for chess. Um, so what did you how often did you play him what were your interactions with with him like i met with walter tevis eight to twelve times uh, on his book uh, i first saw the, the completed manuscript in the summer of 1982 um and i i recommended a number of i love the book by the way i love the character beth Harmon, um and i thought it had great possibilities she had great possibilities. Uh, uh, a larger-than-life character, and we that was soon proved. Uh, not, it was soon proved thirty-eight years later. Uh, but um, I made these suggestions, and Walter said he would he would change them. He was re reluctant to do that, of course. I mean, he thought it would, might destroy the literary quality of his work. And he was a, a chess player himself. He had played in, in chess tournaments. Uh, it's hard to say how strong a player Walter was. I'd say he was somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500, um, which is pretty good for a writer, I think. Yeah. So he, he understood chess. Um, but when I read the book after it came out, of course, he had made none of the changes I suggested. He loved the Levenfish variation, for example. Uh, <laughs> he just loved the sound of that. I said, eh, aren't a lot of people playing that? I don't think this would work, and things like that. But he kept it all. <laughs> the only thing I really did give the book, which I've said a number of times in different interviews, is that uh, the title comes from me, The Queen's Gambit. Um, and that stayed the same. Now, the book was sold in, uh, I think, 1991, the rights to it uh, for filming purposes, by uh, Walter's uh, widow, Eleonora. But it just kind of, and though various people were interested through the years, it wasn't until 2018 when Bill Horberg, uh, the producer of uh, the series, contacted me and said, hey, we're going to do it. I said, what are you going to do? Because <laughs> we were friends from Searching for Bobby Fischer. He and I are the only two connected to both productions. Uh, and uh, we're going to do this, The Queen's Gambit. Uh, you know, we have Scott Frank directing, and uh, who's really brilliant and accomplished. And we're going to go ahead with it. Netflix is behind us, and so we had a meeting. And um, after that, I was I was aboard. And of course, thereafter, uh, I brought Gary Kasparov into it, uh, and uh, it was gung ho after that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just uh, and just an amazing job by everyone involved. Um, so when did you after? And and again, you've talked uh, with John about how long this project was in the making. Um, so when did you actually get a sense of, wait, this is actually going to be really good? Um, well, I, I read read very carefully Scott Frank's script, the adapted script, and it, it pretty much uh, paralleled the uh, the uh, the novel uh, with, with some small differences. And it was it was really wonderful. I, I enjoyed the script. And I realized at that point this is this is going to go. I thought it was very timely. And of course, I mean, Anya was, you know, fantastic. She really does convey being a strong chess player. She has all the nuances and 
Um, you see it in her face and all the little gestures. She was wonderful and deserved her uh, recent award. Uh, so once I met her, I realized it was, <laughs> but I was already pretty certain it was going to succeed after reading the script. The only thing I had trouble with is a lot of it was going to be filmed in Berlin, 95% of it. Some of it was filmed in uh, Toronto. And so I didn't want to go back and forth to Berlin. Now, we had a very good crew there. The German tech guys were brilliant. Um, and they did a great job. Kasparov worked on, I'd say, six key positions. And you know, he's perfect. He did wonderful stuff. Um, he was, by the way, he was greatly, his work was greatly enhanced by software, by the engines, yeah. <laughs> suggesting new and stuff. And he, he says this in his interviews, and it's true. Um, it was funny, you know, getting calls from Gary uh, from Croatia and around the world at all kinds of odd hours on, about the positions. Yeah, I saw his and interview with that. So was that? I was just we'd get saying... strange times and places, and, but I'd have to take it because... <laughs> It was Gary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not ignoring his call. Um, yeah, I was just going to say I saw his interview with uh, Jen Chahadi, and he went into the detail about the the work that went into selecting the positions, and it was um it was uh, staggering how much how much time he went in and how how hard he worked to match um, the the manuscript the the details in the prose to um, to uh, the positions. He worked very hard. Gary worked very hard. Now he didn't come on set except maybe for the visit one day, I think. But uh, he he, uh, he he worked hard from you know you don't you don't you don't have to be there in today's world. I had to be there a lot because I had to uh, train the actors on how to move the pieces and look natural and stuff like that, and that relies on you know being making them feel comfortable and uh, being there for them a lot, talking to them a lot, um, giving them stuff for their phones so they could play over. Um, uh, the, the German guys produced uh, videos so they could watch of other chess players and how to grab the pieces too, so they could review that. Now, Anya did not prepare as much as uh, some of the others. She was just such a natural. She wanted to be shown a lot of it immediately beforehand. And she was just great at that. Um, but some of the other actors did want to be steadily prepared throughout for even if the scene was small. Um, yeah. And that's the key thing to make them seem as if they're natural. You yeah, know, actually you, play. yeah, you guys did a, did an amazing job with that. I mean, that's something I've heard many a chess player mention uh, and that I noted as well. So did you have like a mantra that you gave or what advice did you give to, to have them learn that sort of uh, natural, casual motion of moving the pieces? I would just sit, sit with them initially, interact and relax. I, said, you know, I wouldn't press them into trying to... Into trying to uh, ingrain these moves into their their minds right away. I would assure them they could do it. It's no big deal. Uh, I've seen many non-chess players do this in other acting situations, not just for searching for Bobby Fischer, which I had to do that. But uh, I've worked on you know, six or seven films, you know, through the years and other projects. Um, so um, I, I made that clear to them, or would try to that it's not so hard. Even though I, I, I'm not sure I entirely believe that's not so hard. <laughs> yeah, if you watch other chess films, maybe it is so hard <laughs> because uh, a lot of but actors it, struggle with it. There, there are two things you'll often see mistakes made in, in other chess situations on film. Uh, one is, of course, a dark square on the right, which is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> right? You'll and see so that common. so often. Some of that 
is not the fault of the, uh, the director or the, those who uh, filmed it initially. In the editing process, they'll flip the negative. They think it looks better. And suddenly you have a dark square on the right. Oh, that's that interesting. A lot. It happened on the cover of Emmanuel Lasker's um, Manual Chess initially. The, the, the uh, photo was flipped. Emmanuel Lasker knows that a light square has to be on the right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he couldn't have made that mistake. So that was done after his approval. That's funny. Um, and we've uh, got... But sorry, go I'm sorry. The other thing that you'll see, this ridiculous trope, a player will be sitting at the board and will play a move and say, check, very confidently. And the other player will look momentarily shaken and then answer and by fear, saying, yeah. <laughs> checkmate, as an answer. That is absurd. Yeah. Chess players know that. That happens almost never. Yeah. It's a common theme. Yeah, so many little little details that uh, that the chess world is uh, quite appreciative that you help them get right. Um, and we've got one more question from the Patreon mailbag, Bruce. This is from Joe Salmon. Yeah. And Joe mm -hmm. asks, have you been asked to be involved with the recently touted stage musical of The Queen's Gambit? Well, you never know. <laughs> Very coy. <laughs> you won't have to go to Berlin, right? No, I, I won't. You know, I was involved initially in the production of Chess back in 1985. I was aligned with one of the production companies, but then the deal went to um, the other one. And uh, I think it was, a, no, it wasn't the Nederlander organization. I was the, with the Nederlander organization. It, was, it went to the other one. Anyhow, I got to see it up front in, in the first few days of uh, when it opened on Broadway. And I was utterly shocked. Because in the big number, uh, big dance scene, big song and dance scene, there were four giant placards of my chess books on stage without my name on them, by the way. But obviously, they were the covers of my four chess books. And it, it blew my mind. Huh. That's pretty <laughs> never cool. Never going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, Bruce, this has been this has been amazing. I, I want to thank you so much. This has been a long time coming. I want to uh, thank Kimberly Du McVeigh for for helping us arrange this. It's uh, like I said, I've been been wanting to do this for a long time. So I, I want to thank you for taking the time, and uh, it has been uh, worth the wait. Thank you, Ben. It's, it's a pleasure, and uh, keep up the great work. I think you have a, a great show, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, your future broadcasts. Thank you. I appreciate it. So obviously, it sounds like you might be involved in the, uh, the musical, even if uh, we're, we're, we don't want to go into too much detail. Are there any other projects or books in the works? I know you've, you've um, you know, a lot of people would love to read a memoir, for example. Do you, do you have anything else in the works, Bruce? I've thought of writing a memoir about my teaching experiences for years. I mean, I have so many great stories. Uh, I didn't even touch upon the, the dozens and dozens of fascinating stories about how hard and how lucky I was to be able to do this. I was incredibly lucky to be at the right places at the right time, but I also worked really hard. Um, and I think you need to do both. Uh, you need a little luck and you need to work very hard. Uh, I'll just leave you with one piece of advice that I give to my students. People always would ask me um, what I would say to students. And I've written about this. And I would advise them one way or the other to play as if the future of humanity depended on their efforts. <laughs> That's great advice. Excellent. So, 
Yeah, and you've noted that about Fabiano, and you you know you described the talent you work with as a fighter, and of course Josh Waitzkin became a fighter, an MMA Josh. champion. So, um, yeah, that that uh, sounds like sage advice. Uh, thank you, Ben. Okay, have a good day, Bruce. Thank you so much. Be well. Take care. Big shout out to Matthew Passy, my producer, been helping us for over four years. Much appreciated as always. I also would like to thank everyone who helped spread the word about the show, whether it be by word of mouth or a positive review on a podcast platform. I can't even keep track of all the platforms anymore, but every review is appreciated. I also wanted to remind you guys, you are always welcome to follow me or Perpetual Chess on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Official one That's where I'm most active. We also have the Perpetual Chess Facebook group where we post every episode and sometimes the guests chime in to continue the conversation. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is unretired. Follow us at Perpetual Chess where we post weekly clips. If you would like to email me, the easiest way is ben at perpetualchesspod.com. Also, of course, want to thank our sponsors, Chessable.com and ChessAim and ChessMood. Thanks for helping the cause, guys. Much appreciated and great products that I'm proud to be affiliated with. Last but not least, of course, I want to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal supporters. I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities, Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harst, I am Greg Shahadi, Gregory Galuk, Guvin Manet, James Holyhead, James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromartie, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Cell, The King's Crusher YouTube channel, one of the OGs of Chess YouTube, Lucio Casada Silva, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, The Nerd Naze Twitch channel, Peter Sodi, The Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, Reverend Roy Fry, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, and I also would like to thank Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, 
Chad Hilton, Chess Patzer Spain, I'm not sure if that one's a real name, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Caras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskoschek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Daylin Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Durker, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Emmanuel Langua Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrek Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelde, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Runivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John Tully, Juan Almagar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Jeff Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Josh Friedel, Kare Christensen, WGM, Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gata of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostyakovyutsky of the Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Laura Boyovsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gabel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigma Mulajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Robert Tichi, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Darty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Seth Ruzica, Shane Unger, Silver Knights Enrichment, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks, as always, for the support, everyone. I will catch you guys all next week. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.